welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson, and special guest co-host, Kali Foxman. What's up, people? Election fever. It's sweeping the nation, and not just our nation, it's sweeping Israel, which had an election and a messy aftermath not even three months ago. There's a great Hebrew word for what's going on, balagan. A cab driver told me balagan, meaning mess, is the only Hebrew word I needed to know in Israel. To be fair, he said this while being stuck in traffic in Tel Aviv, along with a lot of other words, uttered in English for my benefit, that we usually bleep out for our listeners. While Israel has a close relationship with the U.S., the way the country chooses its leaders is a lot more European. There are multiple parties, and you vote for a party, not a person, to decide who runs the country. And unlike the U.S., where a tie is virtually impossible, it's not only able to happen in Israel, it just did. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, commonly known as Bibi, is part of the Likud party, which only managed to get 60 out of a necessary 61 coalition seats to make up a majority within the 120-seat Knesset, the Israeli parliament. That means a do-over in September to see if someone can get a majority and, you know, start running the country. Dan and I were lucky enough to speak with two of Greater Boston's leading Israel experts to help us sort through this election balagan, Rachel Fish and Yehuda Mursky. Rachel Fish is Senior Advisor and Resident Scholar of Jewish and Israel Philanthropy at the Paul E. Singer Foundation in New York City. Most recently, she was the Executive Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis. She completed her doctoral degree in the Near Eastern and Judaic Studies Department at Brandeis, where she researched the history of the idea of binationalism and alternative visions for constructing the State of Israel. She has taught at Brandeis, Harvard, UMass Amherst, and in adult Jewish education programs. Yehuda Mursky is professor of Near Eastern and Judaic Studies at Brandeis and on the faculty of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies. He graduated from Yale Law School, where he was an editor of the Law Review and completed his Ph.D. in religion at Harvard. He worked in Washington as an aide to then-Senators Bob Kerry and Al Gore and with me at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, along with serving in the Clinton administration as a special advisor in the U.S. State Department's Human Rights Bureau. He's written widely on politics, theology, and culture for a number of publications, including the New York Times, The Economist, The Daily Beast, and The Washington Post. Thank you both for joining us today. We're very excited to have you. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Rachel, can you briefly explain how the Israeli parliamentary democratic system works and how it's different from America's two-party system? I'm happy to begin uh, the explanation and then Yehuda can jump in. The Israeli parliamentary system is a system that is made up of multiple parties. There is not a dominant two-party system as we have here in America. The party system allows for it to be a coalition system. So you have political parties that span the political spectrum from the far left to the far right. You have religious parties. You have settler parties. You have ultra-Orthodox parties. You have left-of-center parties that came from a socialist movement in its origin but has shifted over time. You have right-of-center parties. 
that now exist. You also have era parties, which have been in existence since the early stages of the state. The way in which you gain admission into the coalition and into the Knesset is by meeting a certain threshold by percentage of votes. And if you don't meet that threshold, then your party cannot be part of the parliamentary system and you will not have representation. And then you have to be able to form a coalition, which is why we are in the situation that we are currently in within the Israeli political landscape, because you need to be able to have at least 61 members within the coalition seats because you have 120 seats in the Knesset. And if you can't uh, form that coalition, then you have to have another election or another way in which to do that. And so you have the ruling coalition and you have the opposition that exists as well. So do you want to add to that, Yehuda? Yeah, I would just add that, um, you know, people may hear, you know, references to an Israeli president, right? They hear about the president, they hear about the prime minister. It's important to realize that the president is not remotely anything like the office of the presidency in the United States. The prime minister is sort of the chief cook and bottle washer of the executive. The president, the current president is uh, Ruven Rivlin. Uh, The presidency is largely a ceremonial function, except at election time, when it's the president who gets to designate, he gives the, the first bite at the apple of putting together a coalition is that the president's call to make almost always it's the leader of the party that got the most votes. But that's where, when you hear the presidency, that may come into play. Even if the president doesn't like the person who right. would be the de facto leader? He right, could. right. Because just the overwhelming um, you know, nature of the, 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 the way the electoral system works. He just can't say, oh, I like you more. Right, right. And also because in practical terms, if you didn't get a lot of votes, you're really not going to be able to cobble and together. And we'll end up having an election six months later. And you'll end up having an election right. six so uh, you had mentioned that they were unable to come up with a 61-seat majority to form this coalition. What were, and this is for either one of you, what were the issues that prevented this coalition from coming together? I'll, I'll start with a few factors. One was the reason you had, one of the reasons you had a fall of the government to begin with was that there were some within the ruling coalition who wanted to have uh, no more have no longer have exemption for ultra orthodox to serve in the army. They wanted the ultra orthodox to serve in the army and that that exemption would no longer exist. That was one issue. Another issue related to defense and security matters in terms of Hamas, in terms of the southern border, in terms of even issues happening in the north around what you know these tunnels that were built as well and the response from the hard right of Yisrael Beitenu which is a political party formed from the Russian immigrants who came mostly during this period of the 1990s. And they were putting forth a position that the Likud party, which is Benjamin Netanyahu's party, was not strong enough on security matters and needed to have a stronger response in that respect. So those were two key components. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I would add, um, and the Israel Beitenu party, which a lot of people had sort of written off electorally because, after all, as time goes by, Russian immigrants and their children are steadily merging with the rest of Israeli society. 
It was the leader of the Israel Beitenu party, Avigdor Lieberman, uh, who's played a central role here and on both of the issues that Rachel's mentioned. He was defense minister in the last Netanyahu government, and he resigned as defense minister over what he thought was Netanyahu being overly soft on dealing with Gaza. Um, which is, by the way, it's just interesting to note, Netanyahu has as many critics and opponents on the Israeli hard right as he does on the left. Um, and Netanyahu generally, as a leader, he's sort of, he's tactically very daring, but strategically very, very cautious. And he's not trigger happy and doesn't want to get involved in taking big risks and certainly not big military risks, even though people on the right regularly want him to or be more confrontational. So Lieberman left over that. And Lieberman's constituency of Russian Jews is one that is very affected in general by the policies of the Israeli chief rabbinate, which, though it wasn't intended that way, has by now become firmly in the hands of the ultra-Orthodox. And so, as they regularly say, you have Israeli Russian soldiers who are good enough to get killed in the Israeli army, but not good enough to be buried in a Jewish cemetery, let's say. Um, and now, in a last comment on that, well, actually two comments. One in general, one of the questions about how the Israeli political system would deal with this issue of the ultra-Orthodox and their adaptation to the workforce over time. It's been a long-simmering issue, but you haven't really had a politician of major stature willing to make it their issue and expend political capital on it. A few years ago, you had Yair Lapid, about whom we'll talk perhaps more, and now you have Lieberman. That's one thing. Um, and the second thing, and this is for our listeners in Boston and America to bear in mind, Lieberman shows the ways in which Israeli politics doesn't run along the same tracks as American Jewish politics. He's the guy who is battling ostensibly for what looks like something like American religious freedom, and in some ways it is. But he's absolutely no liberal on many other things, and he's a relentless hardliner when it comes to the Palestinians. What do you think Israelis learned from the inability to create a ruling coalition the last time around, and how might this impact voting decisions in September? It's hard to know. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to I know. I think it's very hard to answer that question. I think what we did see which is easier to talk about than what's to come, is that we saw a few moments in which it became clear that the new, more centrist party, blue and white, Kahol Levan, in many ways has shifted where the left is. And so we now see an Israeli populace where it has a very weak left of center political party with labor and a mm -hmm. stronger political party with the representation of Kahol Levan, mm -hmm. blue and white, which is Benny Gantz, and Yair Lapid is in that political party. And even though he was, and that party was really the major challenge for the, the Likud party and for Netanyahu specifically, we still saw that Netanyahu was able to gain the votes. And even though, as Yehuda has already alluded to, there are a lot of fissures happening on the right with whether it's the Russian party, whether it's ultra-Orthodox parties, whether it's settler religious parties, there is still a sense from the larger populace 
that the Likud party is the party that represents to some capacity an Israeli political position that many Israelis feel comfortable with. And much of that is around security issues, I would argue, rather than a lot of these domestic issues such Mm -hmm. as religion and state. Right. And the only other piece I would add to this is that we did see, looking at the data, the role of Arab turnout dramatically decline in this election, which I would just posit to a few factors, and I'd love to hear what Yehuda has to say. One of those factors is, I think, an increasing sense of anti-Arab sentiment, Palestinian Arab sentiment within the larger Israeli population, also because of the nation-state law that was passed last Mm -hmm. July, almost a year ago, which in some ways diminished the democratic nature of the state and emphasized the more Jewish particularism of the state. It diminished the role of the Arabic language. It downplayed some of the universalist components of Israel. We also saw that the Arab political parties were divided. Mm -hmm. And again, because of that threshold that one needs in order to get into the Knesset, this created a rupture within the Arab political society about for whom should we be voting and who represents our needs and our political aspirations. So I think that is something we need to pay attention to. I also think there's just a larger sense of apathy because no opposing coalition has had the Arab parties even as part of their coalition. So there's a sense of why does this matter? Why do this? Right. Like, why should they why should they bother? Because they know, you know, there there was this sort of amusing, dark, humorous moment in the Knesset um, when Netanyahu was pulling out all the stops in his last attempts to um, make a coalition government and was sort of proming, promising the moon and the world to everybody and their grandmother. And Ayman Odev, the Arab parties, took the rostrum in the Knesset and he said, I just want to tell you it's a remarkable thing has happened. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu has asked me to join his coalition and he's said he's going to declare the 15th of May Nakba Day and he's going to endorse the right of return. He's going – and the interesting thing is that everybody was laughing. If you look in the Knesset, they were all having a good chuckle along with him because they know that it's only on some other planet. Just, I would add – in terms of what Israelis learned from this, first of all, I think they learned just again like how sick and tired they are of all of this and just how stuck the whole system is. Major takeaway from the last election, of course, as Rachel said, was the evaporation of the Israeli left. I mean, sort of the Labor Party, which built the country, which for many years, even after it started to decline, went on thinking that it was running the country and it's the party with which most American Jews arguably identify, is shriveled to the size of a small faction. It's no bigger than Merit's. You know, sort of imagine if the Democratic Party was the same size as um, Democratic Socialists of America. That's what we're talking about there. And some of this has to do with larger trends. A lot of this is very self-inflicted. Another piece of it, of course, is that the Israeli left was destroyed by the Second Intifada. Um, And that's something with which in some ways they haven't dealt with, but also, frankly, Palestinians haven't dealt with either and accepted their responsibility for that. and uh, what we see now is sort of if, if a major story of Israel in recent decades was the steady decline of the Labor Party, not just as a political force, but a cultural force, a social force, and so much else, I think we see a new consolidation of the Israeli, the Israeli society was sort of splitting in multiple directions. And we have now this very large block of people center right. If you put together 
blue and white, and you put it with much of Likud, that's easily 50% of, of, you know, that's that's easily something like 50% of the Knesset, right? Um, and, And it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out because what Lieberman says he wants now is a coalition government of blue and white and Likud and his Russian party with the ultra-Orthodox out, with the far-right elements of the settler movement out. And who knows? But, it, but it, whether that will come to pass, Lord only knows. But it does show you where, how the new sort of basic underpinnings of the Israeli body politic are restructured, the tectonic plates, how they're shifting and into what place they're shifting. So Yehuda, kind of jumping off on that point a little bit, um, while the government structure in Israel is obviously very different than our own and the mm-hmm. way that they decide who their leader will be is different than ours, it seemed to me as a semi-casual observer, uh, like semi-formal <laughs> observer of the ele- election system there, that things like voter turnout, voter intimidation, and maybe among uh, uh, Palestinian Israelis and the left, the sense of of apathy or futility may have affected them. Um, are there any efforts being made to make more Palestinian Israelis turn out to the polls because the left should know that this would actually probably benefit them getting a few seats if, if they do align with the left? I mean, I'm afraid I can't tell you at the level of granular detail. I mean, I know that um, – I mean, one thing I know personally about is Jerusalem because I was very active in, in grassroots politics in Jerusalem. And there, there's a regular structural problem is that Palestinians don't vote in municipal – East East Jerusalemite, Arab East Jerusalemites don't vote in Jerusalem municipal elections by and large because doing so would recognize the Zionist government and as a result they don't get services. I simply don't know the extent to which that gets replicated elsewhere. So I – I want to just add one piece. The municipal election that happened this year in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. there was a candidate who was a Palestinian Arab from East Jerusalem. And he was very eager, very young, to run at the mayoral level in order to engage politically. And the question for much of the East Arab, East Jerusalem Arab residents was, would you vote for him? Would that change apathy issues? And he felt he had a fairly secure base coming from East Jerusalem. However, to add complication to this, the PA specifically reached the out Palestinian to authority. the Palestinian Authority and said, you cannot run because precisely as Yehuda said, this is normalization. And we, as the Palestinian Authority, do not want East Jerusalem residents recognizing and having normal relations with the state of Israel. So it's hard to speak in these very general terms because there are so many layers here and identity layers. But it is interesting in that from a younger generation, and maybe this is just an aberration, we don't yet know, there was at least some inclination at a municipal level to engage politically. I, I had a question for Yehuda that I, I wanted to throw out there. Oh, absolutely. And, and you let me know if that's Take okay. over. Go on. So we saw with, um, with Sharon – that he created his own centrist party Mm -hmm. when he was prime minister. Then we saw with Yair Lapid, another centrist party. And now we see Benny Gantz and another centrist party. And each of these parties have only lasted one election. And so I'm curious, Yehuda, because you 
are much more expert than I. If it's because of the failure of labor, being able to motivate, energize that left, or if it's also about something that's different within each of these centrist parties that could serve as more of a bridge between the left of center and the right of center, or if it's something else I can't even imagine. It's a really excellent question because it's a key dynamic um, in Israeli politics for decades. I say I first I went to study in Israel in yeshiva and arrived in the late summer of 1978. And the first television broadcast I saw, and back then there was only one channel, was a press conference where um, the famous war hero archaeologist politician Yigal Yadin was announcing the dissolution of his party, Dash, the Democratic Movement for Change. Right? So my my greeting to Israel as a you know callow 17-year-old was a centrist party biting the dust. For decades now, there's been a solid block of like between a dozen to 20 Knesset seats that from election to election wander homelessly from one party to another, creating one centrist party or another. A lot of this comes from is still the enduring result of the big bang of the breakup, the, 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 the 1977 election of Menachem Begin, the crack up of the Labor Party after the 1973 war. It's hard to convey the extent to which labor, the labor coalition and its central party, Mapai, was absolutely central to Israeli public life in the early decades. Mapai ran everything, right? Mapai was entrenched in all kinds of institutions. Ariel Sharon used to joke when he wanted to remember the day that he became a uh, full colonel and he couldn't remember the date, he would just pull out his membership card in Mapai and see the date on it. And that was the day he became a full colonel. Mapai ran the Histadrut, the labor union. Mapai had banks. It had publishing houses. It ran a lot of the, a lot of the stuff in the universities. It was really influential in the judiciary. Mapai was everywhere. And so the, the crack up of Mapai has been huge and it's been steady. And part of what Menachem Begin managed to do was he managed to create a coalition of the people who had been disaffected by Mapai. He created, obviously, the Likud, the revisionist Zionists, the followers of Zeb Jabotinsky, who were totally marginalized under Ben-Gurion. And it's important to remember that um, young Benjamin Netanyahu grew up being fed a steady diet of resentment and anger in his family, in those circles, at everything that Mapai, by their lights, had taken away from them. And he brought in Sephardi Jews, and he brought in um, the younger vanguards of religious Zionism and so on. And so as labor has been losing a lot of the of its social bases, the labor unions, the trade unions, which was such a fundamental source of labor strength, have been steadily declining the same way they've been declining elsewhere over the years, right? As Israel's security challenges and moral challenges have been getting so much more complicated, you have these sort of middle-class voters, not so institutionally tied to what were once upon a time the institutions of labor, not so to the left but more centrist, who once upon a time were in the big tent of labor, but that big tent doesn't quite exist anymore. And so they're always looking for a home, sometimes and, and sometimes with different colorations. So um, Yara Lapid's father, Tommy Lapid, was the leader of the Shinui party, which for a while was a really big deal. It was the big centrist party. I think when they got elected, they had 15 seats or something, and they were a a militantly secularist party. 
And um, Yair Lapid actually made his Yesh Atid party by going in the other direction. He actually – I think part of why Yair Lapid has actually been able to sustain himself through several election cycles is he broadened the social and cultural base of these centrists to reach out to moderate religious Zionists, to reach out to some – to Sephardi voters, to reach out um, to – um, even some moderate ultra-Orthodox folks and give them a sense that he's that, that he welcomes them um, in his tent. Um, and so now the the Kaholavan party is the latest iteration of this. And 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 someone, you know, as often is the case with these sort of moderates, and so many of us, you know, we have the defects of our virtues. Um, they're a big tent party, and it's not very clear to folks exactly what they stand for. Right, what their clear ideological or policy positions are on some of the stuff that Lieberman has been raising, Benny Gantz really doesn't say a word. You know, and what you're highlighting also is this societal change demographically, religiously, generationally. Mizrahi, Sephardi, more religious, uh, the Russians who very much care about security issues, plus larger settler ideology, right mm-hmm. of center, shifts that have happened since this period of 77 that has happened over time mm-hmm. and is moving more and more away from the origins of Ben-Gurion. And, and there's ways in which the trends we're seeing in Israel are of a piece with trends we're seeing elsewhere. In some ways, Israel was sort of preceding things that were happening in America and in Europe. Um, the decline of liberalism, people thinking that liberalism doesn't really solve their problems the way it says it was. The decoupling of, of sort of free market economics from sort of expansive liberalism. You know, in America for the past few decades, we assume that if people go free markets and people believe in high tech and all of that – then that lifts also the boats of like political liberalism, and that's not the case, right? You know, Benjamin Netanyahu is a great celebrant, I mean, of free market economics and all of that. Naftali Bennett, sort of the lead, until recently the leader of the Jewish Home Party, the, um, uh, the, the National Religious Party, comes from the world, the new elites of like elite military units and high tech, and is avowedly a rightist. So these trends and the sort of this resurgence of ethnic and nationalist politics and the blending into one another of nationalist politics and religious politics in all sorts of ways is happening strongly in Israel, the same way it's happening elsewhere. How do you think Israelis are feeling about going from one high-stress election to another in such a short period of time? Well, I can speak as an American that I already know that as gearing up for 2020 begins in this country, I'm dreading it because of the hyper-politicization that's taking place. And in many ways, the um, inability for many of these candidates to truly articulate who they are and how they're different and what they may offer. So I can only imagine for Israelis, there's a similar feeling occurring at the moment I also think some of the in, you know charges that have been leveled against Netanyahu over the years does not help this matter because we don't have a strong sense uh, from where people are in terms of leadership ability, his future as a leader, um, where he will be, if he will be, um, and and that's a that's a question. And I think people are fatigued in general. And want to find ways in which a lot of these issues can be resolved. We want government to work for us, not against us. Is the is the election season in Israel? I've never been there for one. 
Is it as ugly as kind of the end game election season here? Because I can't imagine doing that twice in one year. I mean, I, I hope to only do it once every decade, but we have to do it more, well. Historically, historically, Israeli elections, I mean, on the one, in some ways they were uglier. You know, I was, all the years I was living in Israel, I used to say that in America we have this expression, politics ain't beanbag, whereas compared to Israeli politics, American politics is beanbag. I mean, that was back in the good old days, you know, when people, you know, if you if you used to watch, if you were like a C-SPAN junkie like me, you remember senators or congressmen, you know, apologizing for raising their voices or, you know. Um, so, but the television commercials are, are are stuck in, you know, if you're, if you're, if it's a question of TV ads, they only get played like one or two times a day and then they're just endless and numbing. But it's, the, the zone is flooded with social media and Facebook the same way it is here. Uh, two comments. One, Rachel mentioned something we haven't talked about is Mr. Netanyahu's legal troubles, which are so crucial here. We were going to get to that. Right. But let's but, do okay, it. but well, well, just so – well, before I get to that, I'll make a, the, the other point I was going to make is that, yeah, I think, you know, how are Israelis responding to all this? Like, I think they're really tired. They're reaching for another cup of coffee. You know, luckily for everybody, Israeli coffee is a lot better than American coffee, so that leaves them in better shape. I think what can't be lost sight of is that – the political system in Israel is incredibly stuck while the economy is incredibly dynamic, right? goes on being remarkably dynamic. And also the civil society sector and local and municipal governments. It's really kind of interesting to see so often in Israel, the national government is utterly stuck. And at the local and municipal level, people are doing all kinds of like really interesting and innovative things. They're doing coalition building. They're doing policy experiments. They're doing public-private partnerships. The Israeli civil society sector is just full of remarkable people, these non-governmental organizations doing all kinds of work on all kinds of issues. Um, and that's just, you know, it's just yet another paradox of the society. But as paradoxes go, it's a pretty good one to have. But it is precisely because the national government is failing. And so people step in or lean in mm -hmm. precisely because there's an opportunity and they don't want that vacuum to be created. Mm -hmm. And it allows for creativity in some ways that's right. not linear or a, just a traditional policy perspective. And also one, one feature of Israeli society in general as opposed to American society is that there's this, there's this expression in Israel, leadership is something you take. Right? In America, how do you become a leader? You know, you build your resume, you get letters of recommendation, you – you know, worm your way into, you know, the meritocracy as best you can, right? Um, I mean, in Israel, that happens too, but there's a lot. I mean, just I saw it all the time. People just step, there's an issue and you step in and you start organizing, you create a WhatsApp group, and you, you know, and you try and pull things together and, you know, where the leadership is, follow me. Which is entrepreneurial. Which is entrepreneurial. Which leads them back bones. to that e economy, right? right? It, and that spirit that's yes. deeply enmeshed within Israeli society. Right. And that's also part of where the disconnect between the government and the society becomes so great because society is so dynamic and the government is so sclerotic. So Yehuda, you just touched on Bibi, who is facing a pre-indictment hearing for corruption scheduled for immediately after the September elections. What is the impact of this? Uh, well, you know, he's running scared. Of course, he'll he'll do anything to win. What he really wants to do is manage to get together enough of a coalition to ram through legislation that gives him immunity while he's in office. That's what that's what he's really trying to do. And many people are willing to do that because they want him in office for policy and political reasons um, of, of their own. A larger piece of this um, 
And one that will sound familiar is that, and as Rachel was alluding to about the, the nation state law, a lot of this, one, one element of Israeli society we haven't talked about, though it's crucial here, is the judiciary. And the judiciary, because of the ways in which the Israeli political system has been going in recent decades, the Israeli judiciary has taken on a mantle of judicial activism. Um, and of such vigorous, liberal, regularly liberal judicial activism that it will make American liberal judicial activists blush. Um, and in turn, it's engendered an incredible backlash, right? And so you have people running, not in America, you have people running as, I'm the guy who will put the people you want on the Supreme Court. I'm the woman who will put people, the people you want on the Supreme Court. In Israel, you have candidates running as, I'm the person who can stand up to Hamas and stand up to the Supreme Court. And Bibi loves that. I mean, he he demonizes the judiciary system. For I mean, in fairness to him, he was demonizing the judiciary system, you know, in many respects before he was likely being brought up on charges, um, which is also, needs to be recalled, a crucial deviation from classic Likud revisionist ideology. One of the distinguishing features of Menachem Begin and his his party and his successes over the years was immense respect for the judiciary. And you see that also with Ruvain Rivlin. And it's that rightward shift and ethno-nationalist and more mm-hmm. unwilling in many ways to allow for that liberalism that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And those create cracks in that more right of center position mm-hmm. that Netanyahu and Ayelet Shaked are yes. deeply fearful of. Right. Deeply fearful. Mm-hmm. What they're fearful fearful of the the liberalism that the judiciary represents. Yes, yeah, they're terrified of it. I mean, some some of the criticisms of the Israeli judiciary are are legitimate, and some of them actually come from liberals, like you know, famously Professor Ruth Gavizon, who's you know an, Amer- an Israeli civil rights icon who thinks that too much judicial activism undermines the legitimacy of the judiciary. I mean, you don't need. But they have come to despise the judiciary for a lot of this stuff. And because the judiciary is the last bastion, has been the last bastion um, of these, these liberal values in Israeli society. So we are in June. We'll probably publish this late June, early July, which puts us about three months from the election, two to three months from the election. Have any new faces emerged who we didn't see in April who might shift the balance of what happened last time around and give us a more conclusive result, perhaps, or a conclusive result at all? I don't know if we're seeing new faces. We're seeing a reshuffling of some people and people moving into newer roles. For instance, Naftali Bennett is in eclipse. Ayelet Shaked, um, Ayelet Shaked is sort of trying to... St- start, we're figuring out her comeback to the Likud and how she's eventually going to take it over. A lot of people in the Likud would be very happy to be rid of Netanyahu. And of course, they know that without him, they would actually have a better chance of making stable governing um, coalitions. Um, by the way, just one last footnote to, to what Rachel was saying, you know, this sort of the the populist, ethno-nationalist ideology in Israel, it's, be, it's being developed as an ideology. These aren't just people's refle- reflexes, impulses, um, and there's also American entities helping to fund this. I mean, the Tikva Fund is throwing all kinds of money at people like think tanks associated with Ayala Chakade to develop these ideas and so forth. I mean, the same way American Jewish organizations throw money at all kinds of things in Israel, but that just needs to be said. 
So one face to watch is Ayala Chiquet. Another is, um, it's going to be interesting, that Stav Shafir is now, the Labor Party is doing primaries. And Stav Shafir, who's this young, charismatic activist who attained prominence as a leader of the uh, 2011 socioeconomic protests and is making her bid for the head of leadership of the Labor Party. And she might be able to galvanize some people, not that Labor is about to stage some great comeback, but I think people will be sort of so like i don't see brand new faces but i see more familiar faces perhaps being able to uh, assume higher profiles in this reshuffling and lieberman is part of that and lieberman who we who many of us wrote off you really didn't know that whether or not he was going to make it into this Knesset, according to the latest polls seems to be improving his standing do either of you want to dare to offer a prediction for what may happen in the September election. I am trained as a historian, so I am not going That's a to. Great out. That's a great out. I am out. not going to offer a, any kind of future prediction because, as we saw in this last election, that's a very real minefield. So I would be reluctant to actually make a prediction. But I do think we need to be paying attention very much with the eyes wide open. And I also think for one of the reasons Yehuda mentioned, and I just want to add it, which is American Jews don't understand the healthy tension between particularism and universalism. That's not our world living in this great country. And that is the world in Israel. And we know that when it's this healthy, taut, tenuous relationship, that's when particularism and universalism actually do best. But very often, as we see in these elections, one is prioritized over the other. But that, again, also matters then to understand what's happening in other countries. Because similar to other countries, they are also thinking about particularism and universalism and how this plays out in Israel actually is a reflection of that conversation as well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, the tension or it's sort of the, the relationship between the particular and the universal is baked into Jewishness from the very beginning. Um, and what we have now, you know, historically, administrations in Jerusalem and Washington have wanted to sort of not, not present their own communities is leaning too much in one side or the other. Now we have for administrations in Washington and Jerusalem, both who are very committed to those fault lines and want to press on it um, as hard as they can. Like Rachel, my, you know, I fundamentally work as an historian and predicting the future is, is a fool's errand. I would urge people to look at the underlying trends and understand them as best they can. Some of these dynamics we've been pointing to in Israeli society, including also things we haven't talked about. The remarkable, I mean, we've been talking about the ultra-Orthodox, you know, as sort of this fermenting agent in this. The ultra-Orthodox society is going through a lot of changes in Israeli society in all kinds of direction. Religious Zionism is going through changes. All sorts of things are going through changes. And if nothing else, elections are a great opportunity to see those changes sort of come to the surface and see how they play out. Lastly, why do you think Americans and American Jews in particular should care about Israel's elections? For a variety of reasons, I think American Jews should care about the Israeli elections. One is that precisely because it's not the American system. And by that, I mean, as the American Jewish community continues a long trend to vote more left of center and democratic, what we see within the Israeli Jewish community is that we keep seeing more right of center voting, 
which is leading to more and more inability to understand one another and relate to one another as these populations diverge to a certain degree. And not fully understanding that and exploring it and finding opportunities to at least begin conversations and engage with it actually really matters long-term for North American Jewish and Israeli Jewish relations. So that's a piece of this. The other is that the American Jewish community, American Jews writ large, often impose a lens of American liberalism on the Israeli political landscape. Matters even such as religion and state, understanding the complexity. We don't necessarily, as American Jews, really engage with that. And there's an assumption made of how Israeli Jewish political action ought to occur around social domestic issues that is anathema to the American Jewish sort of identity and experience. This is a very important component. I see it a lot in my younger students who really don't understand why Israel makes the political decisions it makes, but they aren't willing to understand the complexities of the Israeli political system and the historical context in which the system has emerged and the region in which Israel is living, which is not America. So this is part of why I think it's important. If we really want the American Jewish community and the Israeli Jewish community to be able to talk in a meaningful and substantive way, I think this is part of that process. I couldn't agree more. You know, why should American Jews care about this? First off, point of fact, the two largest Jewish communities in the world are the state of Israel and uh, the Jewish community of the United States, and nothing comes remotely close. Also, the United, you know, American Jewry is the only diaspora Jewish community that sees itself as a potential alternative center to the state of Israel. That's, that's because of its sheer heft. And yet, American Jews have shown themselves time and again to be very dependent on Israel for their own sense of identity and place in the world um, in ways that most Israeli Jews, frankly, don't. I mean, that's just something to be borne in mind. And yet American Jewish identity isn't strong enough to sustain an entirely diasporic identity by itself. That's a subject for a longer conversation. But there's another reason. This is something I've just sort of unpack a little bit more something that, that Rachel said. I mean, by the way, just in terms of, but just to amplify my earlier point, right? sheer Jewish solidarity should, if, if Jewish solidarity matters to you in any way, then of course you should care. But put it in a different vein, and, and following on what Rachel said, Israel is good to think with. Israel is a great open-air laboratory, for um, and, and, and yet it's reasonably sized to see a million and one developments going on in our world, but very vividly and, 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 yet, and, and with, great, with great sort of like definition. And there's ways in which working to understand what goes on in Israel will also help American Jews understand what's going on in America. The American Jewish community, most of it, right around three quarters of it, is really at a loss to understand how Donald Trump became president and why all these people are wildly supportive of him. Okay, well, across the sea, here's this country, Israel, which in many ways matters to you, in many ways cares about you, probably have friends and relatives there, etc. And guess what? Over there, he's wildly popular. And it's not like that, you know, unless you think that your cousins, friends, acquaintances there 
the people you knew when you were volunteering on kibbutz or what have you grew a different personality and were taken over by some evil demon, well, you kind of need to think about that, right? Um, Michael Koplow, a DC-based analyst uh, at, at the Israel Policy Forum, put it really nicely. You know, he said, if, if you want to care about Jewish peoplehood, you know, then American Jews need to try and understand why Donald Trump is so wildly popular in Israel. Hopefully, Israelis, if they want to know anything about American Jews, have to understand why American Jews feel so threatened by him, by and large, bearing in mind that the American Jews who support Donald Trump really do support Donald Trump in a very big way. And so looking at Israel also makes American Jews try to get a better sense of who they are and what they are. And I think, you know, speaking some speaking for myself as a self-confessed liberal, I think the challenges of recent years, which in many ways predated um, the rise of Donald Trump and so on, have to force us liberals to drill down and figure out what do we really believe in, to what are we really committed, what are we really willing to fight for, how do we ground these basic commitments, right? Um, and I think that precisely because Israel is at one and the same time a little removed from American Jewish life, and at the same time something about which we care so much and feel so passionately, looking at it can help us come to some better understanding of ourselves. But the last thing I'll say is I would say American Jews, the most important way and the most important form of response to any kind of um, development in Israel on part of American Jews by and large, you know, outside of times of utter crisis and emergency, is to build vibrant Jewish life in America, just so that you have a sense of who you are and what you're about. And on that basis, you can hopefully try and think about it and act. This has been so fascinating, really amazing. I mean, I, um, there's a lot to unpack. I'm mm-hmm. going to go Google some stuff. Uh, and <laughs> you know, I, I can't thank you both enough for... for um, thank you. This thanks, is thank you. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Very interesting. Such a pleasure. Thanks for making me think harder. Yeah, thank you. Listeners, follow us on at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or TuneIn. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks as always to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan. <laughs>